Hello everyone, I'm Dr. Angela Puka and welcome to the Livestream Symposium. As you know, I'm a PhD and a Religious Studies Scholar and this is your online resource for the academic study of magic, esotericism, paganism, shamanism and all things occult. Today we have a very special guest that I will introduce in just a second. But before we start, uh, allow me to remind you that this project can only exist thanks to your support. So if you have the means and can help at all, please consider supporting my work with a one-off PayPal donation by joining memberships or my inner symposium on Patreon. You find all the links in the info box and, um, and in a pinned comment. So yeah, otherwise like, share, subscribe and share the academic fun around because this is how our symposium grows and how we can have amazing guests such as the one that we have today. So allow me to introduce to you guys our fantastic guest, um, Julian Strube. Am I pronouncing your name right? Oh yeah, perfect. I, I should I should have asked before. <laughs> oh, that's fine. Don't worry about it. I met uh, Julian for the first time last time at the ESWI conference. That is the conference of the European Society for the Study of Western Aestheticism. Uh, we academics tend to use the acronyms and sometimes <laughs> I have to remind myself to also spell it out for people that are not familiar with our terminology. So um, uh, we, we met and we had a conversation about his upcoming book that uh, you also presented at the last conference called Global Tantra. And so we will talk about that, but also about uh, a few other things that uh, Julian is researching. So first of all, thank you so much for being here and accepting to be a guest on Angela's Symposium. Well, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> How do you feel today, Julian? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. The, the teaching is supposed to start tomorrow this semester, so it's it's going to be pretty busy, but I'm, I'm looking mm -hmm. forward to it. It's a is nice it the second semester? Uh, yeah, it's uh, the summer already. It's uh, the, the timing here is a bit weird in Austria. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because yeah, it's different here in the UK the way the yeah, semester yeah, yeah. works. Yeah, and now yeah. it's like the middle of the second semester. So yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. Tomorrow, it's everything is going to kick off. At least for me, like uh, on on the first of March, and my events are all on on Monday. So mm. tomorrow, <laughs> that's good. Also, thank you, Andrew, for moderating the chat. Uh, so I guess let's crack on with uh, with the content because we have a ton to discuss. So in your book, Global Tantra, and more generally in your research, you discuss um, a new hi global historical approach to the study of esotericism. So um, could you please expand more on that? Uh, what is this new approach that you are uh, recommending and offering to the public? And uh, in what ways does it differ from the, the usual approach, the usual methodology that has been used so far for studying esotericism? Yeah, I appreciate uh, you bringing this up. So um, indeed, this is a relatively new perspective, at least in the study of esotericism, but it comes out of my religious studies background. So in religious studies, we have this perpetual problem of what is religion. Uh, your viewers will most likely be a bit familiar with that question, but uh, it's probably also important to explain that from a religious studies perspective, you do not want to be normative. You don't do not want to say something is a correct or a wrong religion or a good or a bad religion. You want to understand what religion is. And um, 
recent decades have brought a lot of discussions about the notion of religion itself. You know, like when when the discipline emerged, uh, let's say in the 19th century, uh, we had this standard understanding of religion as something universal, uh, a kind of human faculty that uh, exists in all places, that has existed at all times, and that manifests perhaps differently in different historical contexts, but essentially, like literally the essence, like there's a religious essence that is always the same. And this kind of view and the related uh, approaches have been uh, criticized for many decades. And by now, most scholars, you know, not, never everybody, but most scholars would agree that, oh, yeah, we have to look at, in, uh, look at it in specific historical contexts. Um, and we must not generalize. We must not understand it from a scholarly perspective. Practitioner perspectives are something else, perhaps. Um, but from a scholarly perspective, we should not see it as something having an essence, a fixed meaning, but something that really depends on historical context. And then you had an increasing awareness of the fact that this notion, religion, was applied, especially in the 19th century, but also before, to um, other cultures, let's say to non-European cultures um, within a colonial context. So there was a lot of different people argument, uh, uh, arguing that um, if we talk about religion in a non-European, non-Western context, that is some kind of you know, perpetuation, a continuation of this colonial uh, forcing of European con uh, uh, categories to the rest of the world, some kind of at least epistemic violence, you know, like a violence uh, in, in, in thought, you're forcing a concept to another context. And of course, it was also concomitant with actual colonial violence. So we must be very careful and so on. And the idea behind this global historical perspective is to avoid these two extremes that go hand in hand with this historical development. So on one hand, uh, uh, we, and I speak in the plural because it's really a group of people who are discussing this in the religious studies context, um, so we, we want to avoid um, th this classical phenomenological, as you often call it, essential understanding of religion. Um, but also, on the other hand, this um, idea that you often have in some post-colonial contexts that everything is just a, a, a colonial imposition. It's a Western invention. For instance, this uh, also very complex debate about Hinduism is Hinduism uh, and, and, and a Western and uh, Oriental uh, Orientalist invention. Um, has it been made up in the 18th and 19th century? Um, and thus the same applied to religion. We want to avoid that because there again, you have this focus on uh, Western people, you know, like Western people doing stuff and a little uh, or almost no interest often in local contexts where, of course, people were not the passive recipients of Western knowledge, um, but they engaged with it. They engaged with it uh, in their uh, local context. And these contexts, of course, also have a very long history if we stick to India, because that's roughly where we'll uh, be moving around in, in our conversation, I guess. So uh, in 
uh, in, in India especially, you have these long histories of intercultural exchanges, including the, the Mughals, for instance, the, the Muslim emperors who ruled over the subcontinent. For a very long time, you had exchanges well into antiquity to the Mediterranean and so on. So it was not a static cultural fixed atmosphere at any point, but always very dynamic, very culturally dynamic. Um, and this leads us to esotericism. So it's basically the same problem. Um, you have this, let's say, leading paradigm, like the major field of study where research on esotericism happens. And that's Western esotericism. You were mentioning the society, the European Society for the Study of Western Esotericism. That is where most expertise on the subject of esotericism, whatever it may be precisely, is bundled and where most of this research is being published and so on. Focusing on it. I'm getting to the point where I complicate that as well, but, but, <laughs> but at most of the decidedly esoteric focused research is happening there. And this notion Western esotericism, if you look at it historically, comes from a context in the 19th century where you had initially, especially French esotericists who were um, self-consciously revigorating, resurrecting what they considered a specific esoteric tradition. And they opposed that to especially the Theosophical Society and their understanding of esotericism, which was predominantly Buddhism and Hinduism focused. So these French people said, uh, we are the representatives of Western esotericism. That is, of course, superior esotericism. It has a specific lineage that at the time was basically constructed. Um, and similar things happened also in the English speaking context, uh, even within theosophy, you had these quarrels, which kind of uh, occultism is better. Uh, for instance, Rudolf Steiner famously uh, left the Theosophical Society, um, among other things, because of that, um, claiming that oh, we have to focus on esoteric Christianity and Western esoteric and, and these kinds of things. So this is where the notion comes from. And in France, we also have the first institutionalization of the study of esotericism. And there again, you have Western esotericism as the basic concept. Um, Antoine Febvre is uh, very famously uh, the pioneer in that respect. Of course, that also didn't come out of nowhere, but he is clearly like a leading name in that. And uh, not coincidentally that the sources that he included to discuss Western esotericism are exactly that kind of French uh, tradition mm -hmm. of Western esotericism. And it's no secret, it's very transparently discussed in recent publications that he had a, an insider interest, what uh, sometimes is called religionist. Um, so uh, basically unapologetically saying like, this is my personal belief, this is my conviction, I'm a practitioner and so on, which developed uh, in the succeeding years in a more historical empirical approach. And, and that is basically the standard in the study of esotericism since the 90s. And in the same course with that development, you have the shift of this notion, Western esotericism, from this insider concept to 
historical empirical juristical device, let's call it like that, um, that is supposed to highlight the Western specificity of, of this construct. Um, and it's kind of a maneuver that was done there because it was kind of pretended that this dichotomy that is inherent to uh, Western esotericism does not exist anymore. Of course, it still is very much obvious in the logic since the name is Western esotericism. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, the focus or the, the emphasis from that point on was we do not mean a universalist under esotericism. And this is the crux, you know, like this is the most important aspect. It was kept as a demarcation to avoid religionist universalist understandings. Uh, if you recall what I just said about old school religious studies approaches that assume that there is an essence religion that manifests differently in uh, at different times and, and, and places. Um, and the same uh, that has been discredited in religious studies at that point should be discredited in the study of esotericism. We don't want universalism. We don't want essentialism. We don't want religionalism. We want this historical approach. But this inner contradiction of Western esotericism that has not been resolved so far. And I would say that the one very fruitful way of doing that is to historicize this notion of esotericism itself, um, which is what I would also say for religion. And there the starting point is to acknowledge, okay, today, clearly this is a globally used notion. And people across the world, they identify as esoteric, they discuss esotericism, and significantly, we have vast areas of scholarship that do use esoteric in their scholarly vocabulary, most famously, perhaps, esoteric Buddhism. So for reasons that we can discuss, uh, there is a de facto part of scholarship that does Eastern esotericism, it's a, if you will, by discussing subjects like esoteric Buddhism, whatever that may be, it's one of these terminologies, um, subjects like Taoism, alchemy in that context, for instance, subjects like Tantra um, that are often overlapping. There's even a whole debate if it's not tantric Buddhism rather than esoteric Buddhism. But what I mean to say is that if we look at reality, there is scholarship dealing with esotericism in Asia. Mm -hmm. And it's completely disconnected from Western esotericism. Um, and there are many problems related to that that come from, or basically that are problems because the current narratives that we have, the paradigms and the methodology to look at the sources is flawed. That's what I would argue because mm -hmm. it has this preconceived template of Western esotericism that is then used to take source material and to make it fit the narrative, not the other way around. So it's a top-down narrative that determines how we read and how we select the sources. And that's what I want to complicate. Why is it called global? Because if we go back um, and ask ourselves the question, where does it come from? Like, why? Why are people, like, why are experts on Asia talking about esoteric Buddhism? 
there must be a reason for that, right? Mm -hmm. um, there also uh, must be a reason why we have these different practices and teachings um, as a result of clearly cross-cultural transfers, cultural exchanges. Uh, you can, you know, like stumble in any kind of direction and, and land in a yoga studio, for instance. Yeah, that there must be a historical reasons, reason for that as well. Um, and uh, that basically leads us to sources that predate um, this whole 19th century discourse, um, as you have it, for instance, in occultism, um, Eliphas Levi and all these, um, these, these authors, uh, theosophy, which only imagine, uh, emerged quite late as, as a society in 1875. Um, so if we go back more to the 19th century, um, we uh, discover something quite fascinating. So that's one of these articles that you kindly uh, put in the in the description. It's not out yeah. yet, uh, but uh, it should be soon. And um, what I did there is to to ask why, like why was esoteric an omnipresent vocabulary in Orientalist scholarship in the 18th century? Because that was the case. Um, I, I did my dissertation. Um, my second book on uh, the French occultist context. But in the historical context of um, Catholicism and socialism, and that at the time had a lot to do with this uh, awakened interest in the Orient, the emergence of historical critical um, Bible scholarship, for instance, of Orientalist studies. So people were obsessed with this question of origins and where does religion come from? Um, and this is the background against which people were getting interested in esoteric. Um, so I, the, in, in things esoteric, things referenced uh, as esoteric. So when I did this contextualization of Elifas Levi, that was kind of my focal point for the, for the dissertation, I saw that all these sources that he used from Oriental scholarship, they were talking about like the origin of things esoteric, occult, arcane, uh, in India, in China, in Japan, and in the Orient, the Magi, of course, Persia. Um, and if you trace that um, back to the 18th century and before, you will find that it's in, in, like in an abundance of sources completely normal to talk about things esoteric and occult to identify the Kabbalah of the Sufis and the Kabbalah of the yogis, which kind of are supposedly belonging together. And what I want to get at is not the claim that there was some kind of universal esotericism that was identified by these sources. That is not my conviction um, from this historical perspective, but as a religious studies scholar, I'm interested in why these comparisons were made and how things were called certain things, identified with each other, equaled with each other, um, and how the respective actors um, who were supposedly practicing certain things were exchanging ideas and practices. Um, and it's no secret that, or let's, let's put it like this, it's uh, a common accepted knowledge in, in the study of esotericism and Western esotericism that we have the 18th century as a crucial period 
where this understanding of esotericism is kind of shaped, right? So also semantically, we have the emergence of certain nouns um, in the in 1828, esotericism by a French orientalist. A lot, yeah, a lot of people don't know that the term esotericism is very recent. The term yes. es esoteric is very ancient, but the term esotericism is quite recent, actually. But most people yeah. don't know that. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's the time of the isms. Uh, many isms come from the 18th century and then also the 19th century. Uh, so the isms are formed in a context, and this is where it now gets interesting, where if you look at um, existing scholarship, uh, for instance, Monika Neugebauer-Wölk, uh, a German historian, has extensively uh, worked on this particular context, um, the 18th century. Uh, you will see that she worked with sources that she identified as uh, Masonic, like from the sphere of Freemasonry. And it's true, uh, these authors, they were very often Freemasons and they were interested in Pythagoreanism as it was very fashionable at the time in, in Freemasonry uh, and Hermeticism, of course, there's a complicated story related to that. But um, the crucial point is that we have uh, the argument developed by Neugebauer Welk and others that at that time we have the emergence of what was called a Western esoteric corpus. And our colleagues looked at the sources clearly with the preconception of Western esotericism in mind and identifying exactly the kind of sources that you would expect, like the Rosicrucians, the Theosophers in the sense of Jakob Böhme, uh, Swedenborg, uh, Kabbalah, um, Paracelsianism, alchemy, you know, like these kinds of things where you would say, oh yeah, that's, that's what I understand as esotericism. That's, yeah, makes sense. Western esoteric corpus. But <laughs> if you then look at more than the snapshot, if you look at the entire writing, the entire volumes, for instance, you will see, well, actually, at least as much, if not sometimes more of the discussion revolves around Japan and China and India and Persia. And then you perhaps do another step and you ask yourself, okay, who again is the author? Yeah, member in a Freemasonic uh, lodge, which, you know, we would be hard pressed in these university professor circles not to find a Freemason in certain mm -hmm. contexts, you know. So of course, yes, they were Freemasons, but they happened to occupy a chair for Orientalist studies, or they were experts in Orientalist studies, which at some point meant more something like Persian, Arabic, um, and, and Hebrew, and then increasingly since the end of the 19th century, also Sanskrit and Pali and, and other South Asian languages. So it's not simply wrong to say, oh yeah, those were Mas Masonic, uh, uh, authors, and of course it is super relevant for these discussions, but to say, okay, this is a Western esoteric corpus is the immediate result. I really find this very strikingly clear, the immediate result of a preconceived template that you have, that you apply to the sources, and there you say, okay, there we go, confirmation of this concept, which comes from the 19th century and which we have never really interrogated. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so this is where it gets interesting. And um, of course, 
now we have been talking about Orientalist scholarship and um, what I have done in the in the in the book, like in the Tantra book, is to really dive into this local Indian context. And again, this is where the the, the global perspective comes in. The global perspective is concerned uh, with several things. It's con concerned with doing old school, hardcore, philological source work in specific contexts, in languages that are not European, and uh, contextualizing that um, by first relating local developments to these global connections that shape them. Uh, and that in the case of Bengal, for instance, can be traced back for, for centuries. Uh, and to do that, now I've kind of preempted it, to do that both synchronically at the same time and diachronically uh, writing through the centuries, if you will. You know, And the, the ambition is to say, uh, we are really reconstructing this development. Um, you call this genealogical, you know, you see, you, you try to understand how certain things have attained a certain meaning. Uh, and you start in the present by destabilizing this meaning that we take for granted and that will almost guaranteed look very different if we have done our historical source work. So you relate the global to the local, you relate uh, a synchronic uh, contextualization to diachronic developments. And you are writing what is called a decentered historiography, or you're, you're doing a, a decentered historiography, uh, which means that you are not just looking at specific kinds of actors, let's say uh, white European males, um, but also uh, well, all kinds of actors that are accessible through the sources that is an a massive problem in its own is a big can of worms, our limitations uh, with regard to the sources, but still uh, in the Indian context, you can do that because of a very rich intellectual landscape and an abundance of sources that you can use. Um, and you are trying to reconstruct how this meaning of esoteric, for instance, came to be. Um, and this is where you land in a situation like uh, my starting point in the 19th century where you have this meeting between um, tantrics, uh, Bengali, mostly tantrics, generally from South Asia, but especially Bengali uh, tantrics, and members of the Theosophical Society, and all that in a big tangle of exchanges where Orientalism plays a role, uh, so-called reform, so-called revivalist Hindu movements, uh, exchanges between uh, Persianate, Islamicate contexts and what came to be subsumed under Hindu contexts. Like these identities also really form at that time. Um, and the crucial point is that they did not form as the result of a unilateral Western diffusion or like an imposition of Western knowledge, but through exchanges through contestations and struggles and agreements and alliances and, and rivalries and, and very, very dynamic developments that are out there in our sources uh, to be scrutinized through a certain lens that does not reproduce uh, established narratives, but tries to complicate them. Hmm. 
And what is what is your conclusion by using a global perspective to investigate esotericism? Do you think that esotericism can be um, usefully adopted even for non-Western traditions? Well, I mean, the, the first finding is that it is used uh, de facto. De facto. Uh, you mean amicably, you know, by the, the practitioners? So today, um, no, not just by practitioners, for instance, also by scholars, like this esoteric vocabulary in, for instance, esoteric Buddhism, but in scholarship on Hinduism, you have the notion of esoteric, like, like all the time. Um, and uh, that has historical reasons that you can study. So I summarized that a bit, a bit with that Orientalist um, uh, scholarship. But also when you then look at the, 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 the older historical sources, you will also see that people have um, identified certain things as, as esoteric. Um, and this is, again, where the relig religious studies perspective comes in, as I understand it. My step is then not to say, oh, this is wrong, or this is uh, good or bad or anything like that. Um, I just want to understand how it came to be. Um, it's it's really a, a bottom-up approach, you know. I don't have a, a preconceived idea of, of of what that means. I want to understand how these different historical meanings came to be, uh, in what historical context that was possible to begin with, and who participated in those contexts. And then, what is the main implication, or the yeah, the main implication of this global approach? It was not a one-way street from west to east. It was not just an Orientalist projection. Um, it was a complex historical uh, tangle of exchanges that can only be comprehended if we do have a decentered historiography. And that necessitates moving beyond Europe, beyond North America, beyond what is often uh, subsumed under the West. And in the process, understand also how these um, identities came to be. Western, Hindu, Muslim, Christian, religious, spiritual, mystical, occult, esoteric. Uh, you can study that in the sources. And I would say that we have by now so many examples of how the Western esotericism paradigm, if you will, is of course more complicated than one paradigm, but you, you, you see what I mean. Uh, I guess, if not just ask, uh, like how how this template has been misleading in many ways. It has been helpful in other ways, for instance, by again establishing a certain identity. Uh, in this case, and an, a field, you know, like an academic field. But there is now such a huge pile of arguments and of of evidence that uh, suggests that it makes sense to move beyond that. And a global approach uh, that, of course, must not look like the stuff I do, you know, but just an expansion of our perspectives can only be good for for all kinds of, of reasons. Hmm. Do you still think that Western esotericism, I mean, um, I, I agree with you that it is necessary to have a global perspective when it comes to studying esotericism and move beyond the Western perspective. But uh, one thing that I also... Find, I personally find it useful, but I don't know if you agree with that, that the term and the category of Western historicism feels useful because Western, Western historicism is something very specific. So 
if that you know there are a certain class of traditions that are clearly identifiable as western esotericism as western esotericism in my mind and that doesn't mean that there isn't non-western esotericism but mm. it still means to my mind that western esotericism still it is still informative as a category to understand a certain class of traditions that mm -hmm. have very identifiable traits um so my i i guess that you know one thing doesn't the two things don't have to be mutually exclusive because you can have the category of western esotericism and also the exploration of a global esotericism um yeah i just wanted to one i was just wondering what you thought about that it's a it's a very important point uh and let me first relate it to something I said already quite in the beginning. When I say something like this, a certain terminology is not inherently good or bad. I mean that also with respect to, to Western esotericism, because it is a historically emerged category. And as such, I do not wish it away. You know, I don't want to make it disappear or anything like that. I just want to understand it where it comes from and this is where there is a massive difference between someone taking western esotericism as a research paradigm that it forms what kinds of sources we select and how we read them and like what we select in those sources and on the other hand investigating western esotericism as a historically emerged notion that is out there um, to be studied and of course, I do not want to do uh, away with the latter, you know, that's, that's, that would be nonsensical. Uh, that would be nom nominalist, you know, I like, if I take a religious studies approach seriously, I don't, uh, not, not nominalist, I want to be normative, that's what I meant, sorry. I don't want to be normative, I just want to understand historically and explain historically. And, and this is where it gets misleading, um, because why do you have this? preconceived idea about esotericism that is uh, identifiable. Uh, you have it because of the scholarship mainly that was done about it. And you have it because the scholarship also reproduced certain um, narratives. And I would say in some ways uncritically, not categorically uncritically, of course, there has been a lot of critical discussion, but it's still like the underlying logic. And you can really observe that is something that is being very like clinged to, you know, like th 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 there's a lot of difficulty of complicating the story mm -hmm. at the moment because there is a lot of investment in this paradigm. And uh, I believe that we should uh, be more concerned about like unraveling the complexity of the sources and their context than to stick to a certain research paradigm. So that is what mm -hmm. I would criticize. Um, and then there's concrete examples, of course, and that uh, leads me again to uh, to like the book, um, the study of theosophy. There, there you have a very concrete example of how um, the the idea of Western esotericism completely off, off, obfuscates our 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 gaze to to certain aspects, and um, that would be uh, the fact that theosophy was not a Western esoteric export to India to stick to the Indian context. It was not a ready-made concept that, you know, like was transplanted to India and then 
Indians reacted to it uh, as if they were just parroting uh, Western knowledge. Quite the contrary, like the theosophists also prior to their relocation to India, which was in 1879, just to give some of the viewers a chronological idea. Um, prior to that and during that move and after that move, there was no agreement was what esotericism was like esotericism in the theosophical context was rarely used to begin with. It was more like the terminology of occultism. There was complete disagreement on what theosophy was supposed to mean. And the society entered an extremely rich and complex intellectual landscape where they were challenged, where they were influenced, where, where they had were confronted with different opinions. Uh, with alliances and, and competitions and rivalries. And you can really show how the understanding of what theosophy was, was radically transformed in that context. And almost no one has looked at the mass, the great number of Indian and other Asian members of the Theosophical Society and interlocutors of the Theosophical Society who participated in that project. So you have this very strong insistence in older scholarship, um, which in itself is not very old, just we're talking about several years, that this was like an export of Western esotericism, a diffusion, uh, a Westernization. Um, and, and that is another very tangible result of how a research paradigm can um, limit our, our, our gaze, our selection of source material. Um, also what we select, as I said before, within that source material, nobody was interested in Indian theosophists until recently, you know, that's, that's, that's already in itself telling. And so it's not about destroying something or making something go away and say, oh, that's bad. If you say Western esotericism, you're some kind of like uh, crypto culturalist or whatever. That's not the point. It's about understanding the complexity of historical developments. And these developments are always, really, you can say like always more complicated than what you hear from certain narratives of like, one-sided developments or, or whatnot. And this complication, I believe, is um, what I would like to do as a scholar. I, I don't want to present easy narratives to gather a political following or something like that. Uh, I want to be that guy who complicates polarizing and uh, black and white narratives and political identities and any kind of identities. I want to uh, show a history of richness, of exchange, of fluidity, uh, rather than fixed cultures that then clash and and yeah, you know these kinds of of, mm -hmm. of narratives. Yeah, I think that probably polarization tends to derive from a lack of complexity. And <laughs> yes, uh, always, yeah. And. Um, yeah, I really appreciated your um, your your book and how you talked about the influence that theosophy played. So I was wondering, in what ways theosophy shaped our understanding of Indian tradition, but also in what ways Indian traditions were reshaped by theosophy. So you um, 
have this situation where these different actors meet at the end of the 19th century. And the reason why they could uh, enter dialogue so efficiently was what I was summarizing earlier, this Orientalist fascination with things esoteric, occult, secret, arcane, and so on, mystical. Uh, in the East, uh, great fascination with Sufism, yogi uh, practices, and so on. You really have that, uh, like, basically well on the, into the 16th century, especially the 17th century. And of course, you have these earlier, really ancient ideas about India as the font of all wisdom and the gymnosophists. So you have that in Greek sources, for instance. And, and that is where this, uh, what has been called ancient wisdom narrative, uh, really comes from. So the idea of the origin of wisdom and especially exclusive superior wisdom in the East, in India especially, that is in itself very old. And that's also very well known. Mm. Um, so there, do, you think that, do you think that it comes from before theosophy or did it? Yeah, 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 very, like, very, definitely. So, I mean, the, the theosophists were heavily relying on Orientalist scholarship. And um, what happened in the late 19th, uh, in the late 18th century, uh, in, in 1786 to be precise, uh, there was a very famous philologist, Orientalist um, named William Jones, uh, who worked in uh, in Calcutta, in Northeast India, in Bengal, which is my my, my region, so to speak. Um, he worked in this very rich cultural. Um, atmosphere where he was informed by pundits, by Sanskrit, Brahminical, uh, learned scholars, basically. Um, and uh, he discovered, quote unquote, a family relationship uh, between the languages of Sanskrit, ancient Persian, uh, ancient Greek, Latin, and by implication, the modern European languages, which really blew people's mind. Uh, for that very fact, it was just fascinating to see that these are often apparently like, related. Um, but also because in the context of the time, 18th century philosophy, there was the assumption that language is an expression of what is what was often called like 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 an ethnic uh, like nation uh, uh, in German then folk and uh, increasingly throughout the 19th century race always quote unquote uh, and of course religion is always part of the mix as well so religion race nation and um, language are interdependent which is where these uh, categories come from that uh, were first called Indo-European, especially uh, in the German-speaking countries. Indo-Germanic was very popular. Mm. Um, yeah, but... in Italian there was Indo-European, and um, yeah. I don't know if you if you know that I studied Sanskrit and Tibetan and also Latin and Ancient Greek. And awesome. I remember that when I when I was studying because I studied Sanskrit at university and Latin and Ancient Greek growing up. And when I started studying Sanskrit at university, it, it kind of looked like, you know, you could kind of tell that Sanskrit was similar to Greek, to ancient Greek, and Latin was kind of similar to uh, ancient Greek. So in certain with certain words, you can almost perceive the development because you have more consonants in Sanskrit and they kind of 
open up with more vowels in ancient Greek and in Latin. So you kind of have that perception. Mm. And I remember that our professor of Sanskrit once told us that there was this myth that if you learned Sanskrit, then it would have been easier to learn any other language because it was kind of the root in the European language. Then he said, it's not true, but let's pretend it is because we are here studying yeah. Sanskrit. But uh, yeah, there yeah, was that perception. And that went along with the sense that since it was the root language, then it also meant that it was the root of culture and uh, spirituality. Was that what, what happened? Yeah, uh, that was the common assumption. Um, the, 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 the notion that really explodes in popularity then is the notion of Aryan, uh, which uh, ended up with the Nazis uh, and was inherently linked to their atrocities. So it fell out of use in Europe, at least not elsewhere, but in Europe um, after 45 and prior to that outside of Germany, obviously. But this um, folkish sense um, of a heavily biologized Arian uh, is a result of a longer development. And I'm talking about this just to remind some of you, um, because we asked the question, why could the theosophists and their Indian interlocutors enter this conversation? And why were the, the theosophists in India to begin with? I mean, that's, that's not perhaps completely self-evident. So the idea was, since Sanskrit is the oldest of these languages, the origin not only of that like of, of of the Aryan race of culture of of like European culture basically was to be found in India uh, and then it really depends on uh, how people look at, at like what kind of uh, presuppositions they have uh, one very influential founding figure of religious studies, if you will, Friedrich Max Müller, a uh, famous name, he worked in Oxford, um, was largely responsible for uh, popularizing these ideas of religious categories that map onto those language categories, notably Aryan and Semitic, uh, and who had the idea that there is a pure origin of a universally true religion to be found in ancient India. And that was a conviction shared by very many, including the theosophists who relied on this kind of Orientalist knowledge. And the way that Indian intellectuals, for instance, engaged with that was highly complex because already if you go back diachronically, um, back in time, you're not looking at what happened in the 1850s, for instance, and then let's look at developments back to the 1750s, for instance. Um, we see that this whole program of religious studies, of comparative religion, as it was often called, um, of what Müller then called science of religion, uh, uh, which he translated them uh, himself in uh, um, Vergleichende Religionswissenschaft, it means comparative comparative religious studies, basically, or the science of religion, more literally. Um, that developed already out of this uh, exchange between intellectuals from across the world, um, notably a certain Bengali um, tradition that uh, uh, that I, I, I worked quite a lot about, the Brahmo Samaj, um, who were also very close interlocutors of um, the Theosophists later, but also of someone like Müller and many other context. Um, so you have already this, this, this whole 
fundamental idea of a comparative science of religion linked to the idea of an Aryan origin in India, shared by these intellectuals uh, from India and Europe already since the late 18th century. And against that background, the theosophists think, especially when they read about all these mystical, esoteric occult practices in the East, they think, well, if you really want to get to the, the root of all this, to the source, then we have to go to India. And that resulted in an interesting situation because I, I indicated um, before that this was a very dynamic, very competitive also landscape. You had these rivaling movements and the colonial context, of course, uh, which led to a lot of ambiguity because, for instance, on one hand, this role as the old Aryan brothers, the keepers of the ancient roots of, of, of Aryan civilization could be used to claim um, superiority, to say, indeed, yeah, we know it better than you people, like you have your Western modern science, but uh, thousands of years ago, the ancient rishis, the, um, the Vedic seers, they, they already had figured it out, you know, like you're just scratching on the surface uh, uh, of what we already knew thousands of years ago. Um, but at the same time, of course, this went hand in hand with the reproduction of like certain racial hierarchies. And um, it could also go hand in hand with this Orientalist cliche that India is today in uh, a shape of uh, like degeneration um, because they, this culture has fallen, they've become superstitious. Or another cl cliche, which is very racist as well, is that, um, yes, this is very old, but it's not superior. Uh, it's rather the child stage. And then you have all these Orientalist cliches of the effeminate Indian uh, who is static and uh, detached from modernity and superstitious and, and so on. So it's very ambiguous, this, this, this foundation upon which this exchange could take place. Um, but it was an exceptional situation and you have that very clearly, explicitly expressed in many sources. Um, you have the situation where Indian actors notice that for the first time, and I'm paraphrasing uh, a, a source written by a member of the Brahmo Samaj, who I mentioned, um, there was the perception that now for the first time, there is these Europeans who actually come to learn from us who are not colonial administrators, orientalist scholars or missionaries who say, say you're all superstitious, but to actually say you are superior to, for instance, Christianity. Um, there were different positions on that in, in the Theosophical Society, but somebody like Blavatsky or Alcott, Alcott uh, like two of the founding figures and leaders, they would have said that. They would have said um, that Western modernity is bad. Uh, it's materialist, it's uh, superficial. Um, Christianity is a denial of um, the world, which is destructive, for instance. Uh, the, the, the true roots and also the superior teachings um, that we have to restore also to create a unity of science and religion and philosophy, um, those are to be found in India. And for that reason, theosophy like not for that single reason, but it was one major reason for Theosophy's political 
role in India, um, where they really became a very significant force. And there are many examples of that. For instance, Annie Besant, who became a, a president of the uh, uh, Theosophical Society in 1907, uh, became 10 years later also the president of the Indian National Congress, um, whose founding history was already linked to someone like Alan Octavian Hume, who also uh, was theosophically uh, involved. So you have this anti-colonial component um, of theosophy, while at the same time, a lot of ambig ambiguities, someone like Peasant, for instance, would understand colonization as a kind of necessary step to elevate this uh, fallen culture, basically. So yes, that is a very Orientalist idea. Mm. Um, but that is all that means that we have to look very carefully and very closely at the sources and, and really carefully contextualize them and select our sources, not only with uh, Western theosophists in mind. Yeah, so um, we know that when it comes to the perception that we have in the Western world of Indian traditions and even other Asian traditions like Taoism um, and um, Buddhism and even Japanese traditions, we there has been a massive influence from theosophy. And I was wondering um, if you were to summarize in a nutshell what what this influence is. I mean, what is the perspective and the lens that uh, theosophy has provided to to the general culture and the general perception of Asian traditions? Uh, what would it be? And then the second question is were the Asian traditions also influenced by theosophy in the way they articulate their practice and they conceptualize their own practices? Mm -hmm. uh, so this metaphor of entanglement wants to express that, basically, um, that dynamic. It's not just one side influencing the other, and it's not just a ping pong, but it's a, a metaphorical tangle. This is why I like this, this metaphor so much. It, it really tries to capture the complexity. Um, so yes, it was not just one side influencing the other, but mutual. And since theosophy and of course also the subjects that they engaged with are so diverse and so heterogeneous, it's impossible to give one uh, answer to, to this question, what, what is the main influence on the perception? Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll do you the favor, you know, but I'm going to complicate it immediately. Um, religious universalism, I would say that is really the, the one thing, if in, you know, in if terms my life... of per perennialism, you mean perennialism? Well, that's a, a distinct thing. I, so again, like if, if my life depended on giving you a one, okay. one example answer, I would give it you that. It doesn't. You can also uh, give multiple ones. <laughs> but uh, uh, let's... let's I think that is really significant, uh, not in the sense of perennialism, because that again is linked to certain authors um, that um, are kind of doing their own thing and that very often hated theosophy. Um, that's another can of worms to open, but um, it's not in what you usually understand as the perennialist or traditionalist sense, but of course it is related to let's say, the, the literal meaning of perennialism, which means through the ages. 
Uh, and that in itself, this notion of, for instance, a philosophia perennis that is, that is actually a pretty, pretty ancient one. Um, so the idea that there is a core, a hidden core common to all true, uh, usually that's qualified, um, religious traditions. So it's an, an ambiguous universalism as well, because usually there's also a hierarchy. Um, but I would say that is the main thing, but that is not exclusively theosophical, quite the other way around. The theosophists were actually taking this idea uh, f from, from a broader context, from a broader, from, from also a deeper historical development. This exchange between these Bengali intellectuals, for instance, that I mentioned since the 18th century, um, that, that is a major, major reason for this idea. Um, and this program, let's say, of comparative religion as it emerged, emerged around 1800, so we're a bit back in time again, um, that was actually significantly, significantly stimulated um, by Bengali perspectives. And those Bengali, Bengali perspectives, in turn, um, derived to a significant degree from Persian learning, from Mughal uh, 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 learning that was the, um, let's say, the educated court culture uh, of, uh, of that region at the time. Um, but it also is heavily tied into understandings of dharma, uh, of discussions and cultural exchanges across Asia for hundreds of years, basically. Um, so these, these notions never come out of nowhere. Um, but the one important thing to avoid actually replicating an, a universalist perspective, if that is what you want to do from a practitioner perspective, for instance, you might not want to do that, you know, but uh, from someone who works historically as a religious studies guy like myself, like I want to avoid that. Um, and the crucial thing to do that is to carefully contextualize, um, which again does not mean that when we have in the sources authors identifying uh, for instance, one of my favorite sources is Francois Bernier, that's a, a French um, doctor who in the 17th century uh, was traveling in India, especially in Bengal, uh, who was at the um, court of um, Dara Shikho, who was the son of the emperor at the time and uh, who was one of the siblings who got then axed by Aurangzeb, the, the, the famous emperor. It's that, that period. Um, and he was basically traveling with the, the entourage of, 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 of this prince. And he recorded how he observed what he called the Kabbalah of the Sufis and the yogis. Um, so he had this in, in, in comparativist theory, you call this tertium comparationis. Mm. Um, let me perhaps explain that briefly. Let's say you have oranges and lemons, and you are comparing oranges and lemons because they are citrus fruits, right? Um, or they are roundish, perhaps, or they, they smell nice. I don't know. Um, but you, you need something to compare them. Like every act of comparison always works with this 
tertium, which literally means third, like with the third that you need to, to compare. Um, that's also the old question of religion, like are we using a European religion to compare? It's one of these kinds of worms. Um, but in this case, his tertium is Kabbalah. Isn't that awesome? So he has some kind of notion that historically has nothing to do with, you know, what we would identify as Kabbalah now from a historical perspective. But it was an established notion at the time to signify that they're doing weird and secret stuff. So he was using this Iberian, Jewish, uh, often called mystical term, and he does use, call it mystical as well in the source, um, to compare these other mystics, as he called them, namely the Sufis and the Yogis. And then he goes on to compare them to the European friars, as, as he calls them, the religieux, uh, which doesn't simply mean religious people, but basically members of, of, a, of a religious order. And uh, <laughs> so we have this act of comparison, and it does not mean that this is historically accurate, that the Sufis and, and yogis were actually like practicing Kabbalah. That is not my com conclusion. But we see how historical actors made these comparative acts in history. And we can then look at the sources, contextualize, analyze, interpret, and come up with an explanation for that. And one aspect that kind of and interestingly got lost in the study, like in Western esotericism in that particular niche, um, is secrecy. Because if there is one thing that emerges from all these sources, it's an emphasis of secrecy, uh, which is why it's always very often paired. If you have esotericus, uh, then very often like uh, you have something like arcanus or something like that, or uh, like a, a secretum, a secret, um, or uh, it's emphasized that it's internus as uh, or, as, as opposed to like a broader teaching available for, for a larger public. That is the one thing you always find in the sources. And that is the one thing that is entirely absent <laughs> uh, in, in, in most conceptualizations of Western esotericism. Corpo von Stuttgart would be the, the, the most uh, known um, ex uh, exception. Uh, and of course, there's recent scholarship. Susanna Crockford focuses a lot on also the ambiguity of, of secrecy. Uh, Hugh Urban, who isn't really Western esotericism, but who has a lot of overlaps and engaged with that field too. Like he does a lot on, on secrecy, um, but it's completely absent from the uh, Favrian um, typology, which was heavily phenomenologist in several ways, um, and from the rejected knowledge in Western culture narrative. Completely absent. And that is also interesting because we have um in esoteric buddhism for instance like an accepted knowledge that of course esoteric means secret <laughs> mm -hmm. and then of course they argue and these uh the, the experts uh in, of, on esoteric buddhism then they argue because of course they have disagreements and it's, is, it's it, is it secret or is also secret and heretical um well let's say is it secret to begin with um the first 
sentence of a massive and quite admirable handbook on esoteric Buddhism uh, that kind of has several of the leading scholars um, on the subject begins with the sentence that esoteric Buddhism is by far the most widely geographically spread uh, a kind of Buddhism. Mm. Um, Tantra in Bengal, for instance, that is, that is not marginal. It's not rejected. It's not uh, something subterranean. Um, there is, of course, the aspect of antinomianism in some respects, but also in very complex ways. But what I want to get is it's not really secret, you know, I mean, of course, you have initiations. Um, of course, you have exclusive groups. Um, but very often that's ambiguous and very often this notion of secrecy uh, is very orientalized, very like mystified, if you will. It's like, oh, oriental secrecy and stuff like that, whereas in practice, it might be a lot more public, a lot more mundane, if you will, a lot more transparent. Um, so the secrecy is ambiguous. Um, and what does not work at all is rejected. Uh, I think there's a lot of convincing arguments while, uh, why also in the European contexts, it is more often than not misleading to present it as rejected knowledge categorically. Um, that's a subject of its own, um, but let's stick perhaps to the Asian context uh, where it doesn't make any sense at all. Like it's not rejected knowledge. Um, and the interesting thing there is uh, that you have to contextualize very, very, very carefully to unravel all these ambiguities. Um, of course, in certain tantric traditions, in certain understandings, certain practices of Tantra, there is uh, a ritualized transgression of um, certain societal norms, uh, for instance, norms of purity, um, but in a highly ritualized uh, and limited way. Um, which is a difference to the more intentionally and more exclusively antinomian way that people then from Europe, uh, North America, for instance, have engaged with these practices, uh, focusing, for instance, on what may be perceived as transgressive sexual acts. Um, whereas uh, in the Indian context, it's not that you're, you know, your, your intention is not to be you know, uh, like a kind of anarchist or like a subversive to society. Maybe some people are, of course, there are always all kinds of interests. Um, but the reasons for this antinomianism in the ritualized context are profoundly philosophical, very complex, um, and not targeted on pleasure or trying to be cool or something like that. Yeah, it's not hedonistic. <laughs> yes, uh, and the actual practices are, in fact, really not super pleasurable yeah. at all. <laughs> no. <laughs> they are more disgusting. Than well, that's a matter of perspective, but the, yeah. the intention is certainly not um, hedonistic. Yeah, no, I, I wasn't thinking about the sexual practice. I was thinking about other tantric practices that, um, that I've read about that, you know, are very against the taboos of the Indian society and um, could be perceived as very unappealing to most people, I would say. Yes, yes, yeah, indeed. 
Uh, and then it's always a question of context. Like, uh, is something hidden really? Is something really secret? Um, but it does play a role. It's a crucial point. Um, again, as the, the religious studies guy, my, my, my point would not be to say, ha, I found you out. You are not really secret. Uh, my point is to, uh, to try to understand how the secrecy is negotiated um, within a concrete historical context. Speaking as a historian, of course, you can do that uh, from the perspective of ethnology, sociology, and so on as well. Um, and there's great scholarship on that, by the way. Uh, but uh, yes, also in the in the Western context, uh, not only is it not categorically rejected, the question must, must must also be even if you can reasonably say it's rejected in a certain constellation, why is it rejected? Is that some kind of mainstream conspiracy against esotericism or something like that? Uh, probably not that easy. Um, things may be rejected for all kinds of reasons and also in certain contexts, whereas in others they are not. Um, someone can be intentionally antinomian, intentionally marginal, um, elected uh, marginality. That's uh, a coin, a, a term coined uh, from a more sociological perspective. So it can be nice that you can be part of a subculture, you know, you can say it, like, I don't want to be mainstream, like I, I want to uh, represent these antinomian uh, ideas, for instance. Um, but if you recall again this this tale that I told about the Orientalists in the 18th century and how they were actually Orientalists, uh, uh, not not simply Freemasons and so on. Like if you have a narrative like that, uh, if you have a if if you have a a, a, a historical context, um, then you have to be very careful. You have to look. Okay, um, what is the exact position of that historical actor? And then you will find an army of professors, theologians, famous uh, philosophers, scientists, discussing these things esoteric and local. That's not marginal. That's not uh, uh, you know, rejected even. I mean, people, things are always rejected. Like my, some of my theses are this, rejected. That's the point of scholarship. It's our, our job. There's always contestation. Um, but what we must avoid are catch all overly simplistic uh, identitarian narratives. Um, and that is, is, is a trap that people uh, fall into very, very easily. Mm. Um, and I think in that respect, also, uh, global approaches can help us a lot to, to complicate things. Um, and uh, to I like more... how you say to complicate things as in yeah. a good thing <laughs> to do something. Of course, it's a good thing. That's what I said earlier. You know, like I, yeah. I'm not interested in simplicity. <laughs> oh yeah. And and there's that a simple sense. reason. There's a simple reason for that. Reality is not simple. Yes. But it's as easy as that. Like you can come up with the sexiest, uh, streamlined narratives that catch the attention of many people and say, oh yeah, wow, yeah, I, I totally subscribe to that and that is now you're my identity or whatever, um, is not going to reflect reality. It's going to shape reality, of course. Uh, and there are more than enough obvious examples for that. That's how politics works. Uh, you want to present simple narratives. You want to convince people. You want people to, to follow you 
by giving them easy solutions and easy explanations and this one narrative that explains everything. Mm -hmm. But that is, it's, it's, it's not faithful to the sources uh, or to, let's say, really in the broadest sense, reality. Uh, the closest we can get to that is to always try to grasp complexity. That's my conviction. Yeah, and obviously, I agree as, as an academic myself. Uh, but I like what you said, that, um, that complexity um, represents reality and simplicity shapes reality. <laughs> can we <laughs> summarize it like that? <laughs> yes, I like that. Thanks. <laughs> uh, uh, I'll steal that con condensed uh, statement. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. I also find it funny because Andrew pointed out what would be a tantric ritual for me eating yeah. pizza with pineapple yeah that's uh, a forbidden taboo thing for me as an italian so that would be a proper tantric <laughs> i've seen a i've seen a, a pizza with spaghetti on top once how does that make you feel very uncomfortable <laughs> but then you have to realize that there is eventually no difference between anything <laughs> yes, pizza I know. exactly. Either, that's so. that's the that's the point of uh, of tantra in reality. You know, the engaging with uh, taboo substances and taboo behavior is about um, acknowledging the fact that everything is one and going beyond the repulsion uh, and the the attraction that we that we tend to have in our day to day life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course, they're, they're also very different and heterogeneous uh, things that we subsume under Tantra. But yes, that especially that um, that specific understanding of Tantra, um, that was really catalyzed in the 19th century by the people who I wrote my book about. So that's uh, uh, that's also a very Bengali thing and mm -hmm. uh, like a version of, of Tantra, if you want. Mm -hmm. And speaking of Tantra, I know that a lot of uh, people who follow my channel are very interested in the left hand path. So can you tell us more about the left hand path and how the, um, uh, you know, th that concept entered the uh, esoteric discourse? Yeah, um, I mean, there there is a corresponding term, uh, Vamachara, which Vamachara, yeah. does not really mean what what left hand path came to to mean in uh, uh, in this let's say modern esoteric context. Um, the reason why it got associated with antinomianism so much, with um, then even Satanism at some point. Um, is uh, the circumstance that basically inner Indian polemics, but also polemics by missionaries and Orientalists uh, were leveled against Tantra um, because of these, for instance, cremation ground practices and um, sexual elements, the consumption of, uh, consumption of impure substances. Uh, so it was said, oh, that is the, the worst uh, degeneration and it's abhorrent and it's devil worship and um, black magic, of course, that that was the theosophical uh, conception uh, on the part of someone like Blavatsky when this whole exchange happened, that it's black magic. So there was kind of a mapping of white magic, black magic, 
where is this uh, uh, right-hand path, left-hand path? It doesn't work like that historically. Um, but you do have these ritualistic transgressions as part of what can be translated as left-hand path. Um, and certain actors were then especially interested in this transgressive aspect, in this, uh, you know, anti-social norm aspect, uh, and highlighted that and basically took this idea to the extreme as well. Some people who said, oh, yeah, that is Satanism. You know, if that is the same as devil worship, entirely subject of its own again, but let's just put it that simply. Uh, yeah, that is um, something satanic, something really against society, against especially Christian norms. Um, and that is a development of its own. It has something to do with uh, uh, Indian traditions, um, but it's a reinterpretation, a renegotiation within concrete context, which is not to delegitimize it, because I'm also not uh, convinced by these clear distinctions between, oh, something is authentic and something is not authentic. Um, again, that is the religious studies perspective. I'm not out there to tell anybody what they should practice or believe. Um, but if you want to make the distinction between historical practices and present-day understandings of left-hand path, there's quite, quite a gap between that. Could you tell us more about the, the traits that differ from the Vamachara tradition, the left hand in uh, Tantra and the left hand in Western, in the Western understanding? Yeah, two, three perhaps major um, examples, and this is generalizing. There, there are very different understandings of left-hand <clears throat> path and Tantra, of course, so what I say might, might not map on what some people might expect or agree with. Um, but uh, you, uh, let's say in the Western context, uh, you would have a hedonistic element. Uh, you would have a position that we don't believe this Christian, perceived Christian uh, negation of the flesh and so on. No, we want to embrace that, including sexuality. Um, that is not the point. Um, perhaps for some it was, but it's it's not the point of historical tantric practice. Um, another uh, example would be you don't really want to transgress social norms because you you feel like that's the right thing to do um, in historical forms, always quote unquote, um, that might come from this philosophical position uh, of realization that there is no such thing as pure and impure or that you can make use of certain energies um, if you do it in the right way and get Siddhi, these extraordinary powers. Um, I promised three aspects. Uh, what was the third one? Antinomianism uh, and the hedonistic. Let's, let's stick with the two because this is also a never-ending subject. Uh, the point is um, it's not about uh enjoying stuff it's not against society or so mm -hmm. historically speaking that would be major differences mm -hmm. but there yeah. is of course yeah sorry you were saying i don't want to interrupt no no please it's uh 
No, I was saying, uh, yeah, I think that now there is a bit more awareness about these differences and the fact that the perception that has arrived in the West of Tantra is very different from what um, it is and was in, in India. And uh, I think as the last question, I'd like to ask you about the role of mesmerism in the reception of these Asian traditions. Mm, yeah, that's, that ties again uh, immediately into this um, Orientalist um, aspect because um, so mesmerism became quite popular in the years around 1800 um, and it was immediately related to uh, an interest in Indian practices and teachings, for instance, notions like prana the, uh, that were then related to subtle energies uh, to uh, occult forces, which was an established natural philosophical idea, you know, that there's occult qualities to things, occult forces. Obviously, there is from that perspective. If you think of magnetism, for instance, you have two magnets or like uh, a magnet and, and, and a piece of iron, and there's clearly some kind of either attraction or repulsion. So that's a force that isn't green or yellow, or so you can see it, but it's there. Um, you have occult properties, occult qualities. Uh, a certain herb doesn't have an effect printed on it, you know, like a little piece in a uh, package of meds, but the quality is not obvious, it's hidden, it's occult. Um, and these ideas were then, of course, very much popular when mesmerism was supposed to, uh, to instrumentalize these occult forces. Uh, uh, like animal magnetism, for instance, uh, different kinds of mesmerisms. There were quite different concepts, but they, they were related very extensively to um, especially Indian practices, because again, the idea was that ancient wisdom came, of, came out of India. So this, this old ancient wisdom uh, from India, of course, it had to do something with science and now modern science in the form of mesmerism was rediscovering this ancient science. Very, very widespread idea at the time. Um, it was linked to magic as a natural explanation for magic. Um, you know, not thinking of it in terms of, for instance, demonic uh, versus angelic magic or something like that. Uh, but in the sense of magic as the use of natural forces. Um, so Orientalism, Oriental studies. Um, so when I say Oriental studies, I don't necessarily mean the capital O Orientalism. So Orientalist studies, mesmerism, reception of Indian um, doctrines, practices, those really went hand in hand. Um, and one of the articles that you find in, uh, in the, the description that you kindly refer to, which I hope will be out um, also pretty soon, um, that revolves around a French Jesuit in the late 18th century who uh, lived in Beijing for like over like 40, 50 years um, and who was good friends with learned Chinese. And in that context, learned about mesmerism um, and started to interpret Taoist practices and, and Kung Fu, as he called it, uh, as a mesmerizing technique. Mm. And he did not simply do that as uh, a projection of 
this Orientalist idea, but in exchange with his Chinese friends, uh, which led him eventually to conclude that these Chinese practices are actually superior to mesmerism, because again, you have this narrative, modern mesmerism is just a superficial rediscovery of something that has been more profoundly understood already 4,000 years ago in that case. Um, and I, I just give you this one example where um, mesmerism functions as <clears throat> um, uh, a matrix for interpretation of cultural practices. Uh, and there's that wonderful passage in a, in a, in a correspondence that he had, um, by the way, with the guy who then wrote about Tarot. And that in turn was one of the main, major sources for Elifas Levi um, when it comes to Tarot. Uh, so, yeah. Um, it's linked to that. I think. Was yes. it Kurt de uh, Yeah, Kurt de Gebelin. That was one guy. He, co yeah. he corresponded with with two. Like there was another <clears> guy um, called the Conde Meillet, um, and he was, he corresponded with both. Um, so that's actually quite mind blowing that he did that to begin with. Um, but that basically led to him writing at some point. I have been walking around for decades here and I have looked at these weird practices and now that, and he puts it like that, I have been initiated in the science of mesmerism. I now understand these mm -hmm. practices. Um, but he then goes a step further and says, this actually is not enough because mesmerism doesn't really get it. The guys who get it, those are the Chinese. <laughs> mm -hmm. Uh, and that is such a wonderful example of cross-cultural interpretation and, as I call it, translingual practice. Well, I don't call it, I, I take up this notion from a, um, a linguist, uh, literary studies, uh, Lydia Liu, uh, where translation is not understood as I'm translating something from point A to point B. You know, I don't draw up a list like in the past centuries of corresponding words or something like that. I um, try to understand the historical context that made a translation possible without assuming that there can be a direct 100% identical uh, in translation that is always correct or something like that. You know, It's about the historical context. And that is part of this global historical perspective. I'm not so much interested in you know identifying wrong and right translations or interpretations i'm interested in the exchanges themselves in the historical context that allow us to explain uh, to understand what was happening and then also build some theories on top of that you know like what does that mean for intercultural exchange for translation for religion uh, for esotericism for practice for um, for for the, these kinds of uh, ideas, so also of course materiality and so on. That's not so much my shtick because I'm a text guy, but all kinds of approaches can work with that. Yeah, that that is very fascinating. Thank you for answering that, and thank you, Mark. Oh, I was trying to put you on screen. Uh, thank you, Mark, for the super chat, and I'm glad as well that you uh, caught up <laughs> caught us live. Um, so I guess that these were all the questions and all the things that I wanted to discuss today. Is there one last final thing that you that you want to address that you feel people should know when it comes to understanding the matter of Asian traditions from a global perspective? 
Oh, I think we have we have brought up so much. Um, <laughs> yes. If if there is if there is more interest <laughs> on on the uh, the 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 other side, I think that would be a lot more interesting at this yeah. point. And where can people find you or your work? Should they be interested? Obviously, uh, everybody check the info box because you will find the publications that we've talked about and a link to uh, Julian's book, uh, Global Tantra. So in case you're interested, you will find the link in the info box. Thank you for that. Uh, I, I'm quite you have social media. You're not very social. Uh, <laughs> so you're not yeah, I, I, I'm not a big fan of social media, to be mm -hmm. honest. I do have a Twitter account that I use like every three months or something <laughs> like that. So, like, uh, do you have uh, an academia.edu? Yes, I, I was about to say that. So I, I try to upload all my stuff except of the monographs on um, academia edu in some form or another sometimes that's what you call the preprint or postprint that is basically still the word version of the word processor um but already through peer review and it's going to be published in with that wording but with different pages and so on of course um i either do that or i just upload the, the amount of things so and of course uh, you can just uh, Google me. I, I have a department website. Uh, you can email me. I'm happy to send you uh, my, my stuff. <laughs> that, that's why I usually tell people that academics are generally very keen on sharing <laughs> the knowledge. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's the job, isn't it? <laughs> yes, but yeah, for everybody, most people must have heard me saying that uh, a lot of times, but. Uh, academics often have a page on academia.edu and uh, Professor Strube also has it. So if you want to read uh, his publications, you will find them there and you will find more to come, the forthcoming ones. So you should also follow him. <laughs> That's what I usually post on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much, Julian, for being here and for sharing with us your uh, vast knowledge on the subject. <laughs> Well, thanks for having me. That's that was a lot of fun. I very much appreciate it. Oh yeah, that that was amazing, and I definitely look forward to seeing you in at the next Tesui conference yes, in that's, Malmo. That's, that's, What's the yeah. right pronunciation? Malmo? I think Malmo. Malmo. I'm I'm not sure. I, probably the Swiss are laughing at me now. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to to having uh, overpriced Scandinavian beer with you. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> but delicious one. It's very expensive, but uh, yeah, that's actually a vicious circle. You have always have to get more of it. Uh, yeah. So let me wrap up the live stream, and then we can have an after chat. Let's do. <laughs> so for everybody who's been here up until this point, thank you, thank you so much. And whether you're seeing this live or if you're seeing this after uh, we've been through the live, don't forget to smash the like button if you like this interview. But why wouldn't you? I don't know. <laughs> and um, share this video with your friends. Uh, subscribe to the channel. Activate the, notifi the notification bell and leave me a comment so that I know what you thought about this video. And also you can ask questions that I can answer to and also engage the community other people may also have the answer to your question so thank you so much for being here and stay tuned on angela's symposium for all the academic fun <laughs> bye for now <laughs>